for the week of October 8th, 2023. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 634, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. Well, well, uh, so let me translate because I guess I talk dog now. Uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. Okay, uh, yeah, I, I don't really know why. I'm in the doghouse. Oh, why? Why? I did not get that at all from from. Well, that. no, why would you? You'd have to ask. But first of all, I I don't like to bet, but I I laid a I thought this was the year I or we would get a MacArthur Genius Grant. Surely they're going to expand into podcasts and recognize the work being done in podcasts along with, you know, fancy stuff like actually writing things or composing things or painting things. So I thought this would be the year of podcasts and the MacArthur Genius Grant. If they're going to go into podcasts, obviously they're going to stumble across us and say, "Hmm, you know, there you go. That seems like a good idea. It didn't happen. We did not get a MacArthur Genius Grant. However, while I, while I did not get one, I did check out some of the people. Often I've interviewed them uh, in the past, which is always feels a little pride. And you're like, oh, I spoke to them before they got a MacArthur Genius Grant. I hadn't really been aware of too many of the people on the list this year. And one of them was a composer and pianist named Courtney Bryan. And I thought, oh, she's cool. I'm an acclaimed uh, composer and I believe a teacher as well. I went in to look on, on Amazon Music. She has two albums available there, one from quite a few years ago. Classical music is hard to populate on stuff. So, you know, there are other things devoted to classical music. Courtney Bryan has all sorts of acclaim and I'm sure deserves her genius grant. I can't wait to listen to her music, but I must, I went on Amazon music. She had 10 followers, 10 plus tens of followers. I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> classical music is really, you know, the kids are just not listening to it these days, no. but that's not the real reason I'm in the doghouse. The real reason I'm in the doghouse is because I like to mock Sperling. Oh, when he goes out of town and can't manage to uh, have a show, I'm going to New York on Saturday and coming back Wednesday morning. I'm going to go see Merrily We Roll Along in New York City on Tuesday night. If God willing, nobody is out. Please, Jonathan Groff and Daniel Radcliffe, stay healthy. And uh, I'm not sure if I'll be able to do the show on Monday. What? I know. Um, I'm going to bring my mic. My host has got a Zoom meeting in her apartment around that time, and we can figure maybe, around Maybe it, we can listen in. Maybe it's more interesting than what it, we've got. To. It may well be. So I'm going to try. Uh, I said, just don't be surprised if there is not an episode next week. And, of course, next week is when Taylor Swift's movie will have come out. We'll all be saying, oh, my God, it made a ton of money. So we can That's do that true. right now. Say it. Oh, my God. It's already made $100 million worldwide <laughs> before it even, it even opens. That's right. That's one thing we're going to talk about this week. What else? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are so, so, so excited for Taylor Swift, as Michael just Woo! mentioned. Well, I am, because I hang out with exhibitors all the time, you know, the movie theater owners, and they are mm-hmm. really, really, really excited for the Swifties. And now the Bayhive. They're so excited. Before that happens, we've got this week's box office and a tale of two shorts. We're going to explain what that means. Strikes are happening everywhere, by the way, not just Hollywood, but we've got more on the writer's deal I know we went into it last week, but we've got a little bit more. It's kind of trickling out. And the latest on the actor strike, believe it or not, the AMPTP and the actors, they're actually talking, which is one way you resolve a strike, by the way. <laughs> Come on, people. Uh, in to that the case, producers the- and to the talking to the studios and streamers, not the actors or the writers or anyone else. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Well, by the way, 
Uh, I, I agree with you that no news is good news sometimes in this case, at least we hope. Yeah. On Inside Baseball, we'll look closely at Spotify's push into audiobooks. Is this good news for publishing or just another way for the company to punt when it comes to showing a profit? Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's a joke, by the way. We are looking at box office around the world for the week ending October 8th. We are the only people who focus on the entire week's box office. Show some respect to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and often Thursday. Why ignore it? The numbers are bigger. And we pull information from Comscore. There's a link in our show notes. We go to Box Office Prof, not uh, Box Office Mojo, The Trades, The LA Times, anyone, anywhere who talks about box office, especially box office around the world. If you're in Korea or Japan or Central or South America or Australia, and you want to make sure we've got info on movies and you've got a great resource that's out timely, meaning by Sunday or very, very first thing Monday morning, uh, New York time, you know, share it with us. Let us know where we can go to find info on your territory. Cause unless it's covered by the trades, some of that falls through the cracks. We get a China site early Monday morning. We have India usually by Sunday or Monday morning. That only usually covers Bollywood. Not all India titles doesn't color, uh, movies made by other divisions in India, just the Bollywood titles. So we're always looking for more information. If you have something to share, a website we can go to to get information in your country, however big or small, tell us. Yes, you can write to us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. And please do call. Leave us a voicemail. We'd love it when you do that. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on... I, I hate calling it X. I just hate calling it X, but it's Twitter to me. Uh, that's how old I am. It's Twitter to me. Uh, at what, Showbiz four Sandbox. weeks? You're four yeah, weeks old? Exactly. I mean, you know, it's only been a week. <laughs> at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. And that's uh, actually where you can find us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. All right. So we're looking at box office around the world. And the number one film for the last week, ending October 8th, is Under the Light. The crime drama by Yimu Zhang from China. It grows $78 million this week, a great hold. It's at $143 million worldwide. Another Chinese movie, a rom-com, I believe. It's called The X-Files, as in X, as in divorced. The X-Files 4 Marriage Plan. That made $53 million. It's at $109 million and counting. Sticking with China, The Volunteers to the War. Uh, that made another $44 million for this movie about China's participation in what we call the Korean War. It's the first in a trilogy, and it grew over its opening weekend. The following seven days made more than the first three or four days, so that's a good sign. It's now at $80 million worldwide. A little slower is Moscow Mission, the action comedy starring Andy Lau from China. That made another $40 million, though. That's at $64 million and counting. So that seemed to be growing. And there's one more movie. Where is it? Oh, yes. Lose to Win. That's the Chinese sports comedy uh, uh, based on the true story of a team with special needs that started to win competing against other people who were not uh, differently abled. And it's a remake of a Spanish film that's been remade again and again all over the world, including in English. And this had a terrific hold. It grew by 50% over its opening. So it made $11 million this week. It's at $18 million in counting. Obviously, it started small, but the word of mouth has been good. And uh, one more film in China is Backham Bears. This is a long, ongoing 
cheapo animated series. Uh, the new edition is Backham Bears Mars Mission, and that opened to about $9 million. I think that's about it for China. So we'll go back to the top of the charts where the biggest movie, Under the Light, made $78 million. The X-Files 4 made $53 million. Both of those are from China. Now, we are shooting video even though we don't want it, right, Sperling? Yeah, we, have the, we use this, uh, this app, Squadcast, to do our... Um to do our show and, and you're it was generally bu- happy with it yeah and uh they they were purchased by or, or acquired by a group called descript i tried using descript to edit the show it did not work at all like i wasted an <laughs> entire day of my life trying to edit the show using their transcripts and it just does not work properly mm-hmm. uh or as well as it should or as well as i need it to i should say uh so now we're recording video so i hope that doesn't change the audio quality <laughs> well, it hasn't so far, right? No, not at all. That's right. But if we were shooting video and showing video uh, on this next film, that's where you would show me in my head rotating 360 degrees. As I say, number three around the world is The Exorcist Believer, $45 million in its worldwide opening. Now, that movie cost about $30 million to make, so it made more than its budget on its opening weekend. That's great news. However, Universal paid $400 million for all the rights to the Exorcist franchise. That's my understanding. I assume it's not just movies. Correct. So they're planning to make this a trilogy. Well, they're off to a good start, but $400 million. It's going to take a while to make that back. <laughs> I mean, that, that is absolutely, seems- I don't know how they're going to make it all back. Yeah, I mean, maybe over decades or two, two decades, but still, it's a lot of money for one franchise like The Exorcist, which was not a big franchise, really, when you think about it. But anyway, uh, Paw Patrol, I should have said that in Doggy, but Paw Patrol, the mighty movie, that made $41 million. That's at $87 million worldwide. The Creator, a sci-fi flick that has had mixed reviews from director Gareth Edwards, but I know some people who really touted and like it. That made $30 million this week. It's at $60 million and counting Mostly, it seems like, for the visuals. Saw 10. Now, there's a a franchise. You wouldn't want to pay $400 million for it, but it's hugely profitable. That made another $24 million this week. It's at just above $50 million worldwide. And then another big franchise, but more on, you know, The Nun 2 from The Conjuring Universe. That made another $18 million this week. It's at $250 million worldwide. And then the Aussie horror flick, Talk To Me. There will probably be a Talk To Me too. That, that, that made $60 million this week. It's at $90 million worldwide. Now, it didn't literally make $16 million this week. But last week, its total was $73 million. This week, its worldwide total is $89 million. It probably made 4 or $5 million this week worldwide. It's mostly played out. It didn't open any big new territories that I could see. So somebody somewhere, the numbers were added up and everybody agreed, oh yeah, the total is actually this now. The same is true of Sound of Freedom, the Jim Caviezel movie. It gets another boost from some found money. Uh, so it's crediting with $14 million this week. It's at $230 million worldwide. It's making good money overseas, decent, and it was already a huge hit from North America alone. So there will be Sound of Freedom and then Sounds of Freedom and then more Sounds of Freedom. You know, it's going to keep on coming. We're almost done with movies that have made at least $10 million. It looks like there's about 12, I think. A Haunting in Venice, the Kenneth Branagh film, that passed the $100 million mark. And, of course, Lose to Win, which we already covered. That is at $18 million and counting. Then we got Denzel's franchise, Equalizer, 
The Expendables. That movie is really falling hard and fast. That made $8 million this week. It's at $44 million and counting. That and the yet another um, Liam Neeson action flick, that one has fallen off the radar. Looking for some stories to tell. Oppenheimer's at $940 million, $61 million to go. Uh, Dumb Money had a pretty good hold. That acclaimed film by Paul D- was starring Paul Dano. That's a $12 million, but it seems like it's getting good word of mouth, just like some of the other movies. Everybody I know who's seen that movie loves it. I just mm-hmm. think that the marketing on it was just so poor that nobody even, I mean, I know people who are, who ask me, oh, wait, it's out? I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that tells you something. In France, the great Catherine Deneuve is in a new movie about the wife of a politician. She's a brilliant behind-the-scenes person, helps get him into power, but then she doesn't have a big role to play, and she gets her revenge by being an online influencer or some sort. So she gets her revenge that way. That opened at just under $2 million. Hocus Pocus, if you're in the Halloween mood, the 30th anniversary of that movie. Of course, they had Hocus Pocus 2, I think, last year. Um, that came out on streaming. And I think it had a brief theatrical run, maybe. But uh, it is out in theaters as a reissue. The original Hocus Pocus with Bette Midler, $1.6 million in its reissue. Uh, the first version made about $47 million worldwide on a $28 million budget. So it's one of those movies that really found its life in the afterlife on video and TV reruns and has become more viable. So the story's never all told just from box office alone. When we talk about movies being hits or flops, it's usually movies that are hits from box office alone. And we always recognize that there are other movies that will probably become profitable down the road. And then there's stuff that you wouldn't necessarily expect like Hocus Pocus, which has really become a valuable part of the property. It was well, all and then there's viable. Pedro Almodovar's uh, short film, which you wouldn't even think would be released in movie theaters, and yet uh, it's playing no. on 276 screens. That's, uh, that's some love from his uh, longtime friends at Sony, I think, right? Sony Pictures Classics oh, has possibly. a good relationship with Almodovar. So his gay cowboy short, Strange Way of Life, opened on theaters, 276 theaters, and made about $200,000. So but wasn't it paid for entirely like, by some fashion brand like... It was faulted for looking like it looked amazing, like everybody was dressed to the nines in this cowboy <laughs> movie. But then it was we found out. Oh wait, it's uh, like an Yves Saint Laurent uh, ad. Essentially, well, it didn't. The, o- it didn't open in Birmingham. Okay. Uh, it made a little less than a thousand dollars. Getting people to go to the theater for a short that's less than forty minutes long. That's a that's a hard lift. You look at Wes Anderson. His new movie had come out in theaters. Asteroid City is that the, is that the name of it? Yes. Um, but he has a short. A couple of shorts, actually. Three shorts or four shorts based on stories by the author Roald Dahl. They've all dropped on Netflix, as the kids say. And the first one and the longest is The Wonderful World of Henry Sugar. I, for whatever reason, though I generally like Wes Anderson, I did not click with the new movie. It's one of my least favorite of his so far, but that's okay. It happens. But The Wonderful World of Henry Sugar, I really enjoyed that. I, I thought it, it just worked for me. I don't know why. From start to finish, I look forward to watching the other three. Have you watched it yet? I did. I really uh, enjoyed that film. I mean, even though it's it's told in a very narrative, you know, uh, narrational heavy way, it's I enjoyed it. Yeah, he said he couldn't figure out how to make the movie, but he finally decided just having the characters turn and talk to the screen to stay the, the, the text related to them was the way to go, and it worked. Um, but, you know, you can't, it's really a hard lift to expect shorts to play in a theater like Almodovar and bring people in unless it's packaged with other stuff. And even then, it's a hard sell. Really, the only place where shorts are really popular is Russia. 
I was just going to say, I was just going to, wait, did you get this from the, the, of course, tell them, tell them, Cellular Junkie. So yeah, Cellular Junkie has a newsletter. It's the marquee. You can go to, uh, I think it's celluloidjunkie.com slash newsletter and you can subscribe there. Uh, And one of the stories was about the fact that Barbie uh, is actually showing in Russia, despite the fact that there is a Hollywood uh, boycott right now of Russia. None of the Hollywood studios are releasing their films in Russia, at least not directly. There are some like Expendables, or no, not Expend. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's Expendables. Like John Wick, some that John already Wick, had deals in place, and they, they, they say there, there was no way for them to pull it back, etc. But in general, there are a lot of major studio titles not playing in Russia. Unless and, uh, they're pirated, brought in, and then they don't sell tickets to the actual film, Barbie or Oppenheimer. But instead, they sell tickets for a short film for 4 or $5. And then uh, people go, oh, well, what am I seeing before that? Oh, it looks like I'm seeing Barbie before my short <laughs> film. So, so that's happening in Russia. My question for you, which I don't think was addressed in the story, is Hollywood taking notes? Oh, they yes, saying- they are. Yes, they but are. But what are they going to do? Those chains are not going to disappear. If it's the big chains, if it's small guys, they can crush them perhaps and say, we'll never do business with you again. But once the war is over and they're ready to do business again in Russia, hopefully someday that day will come and the Russia will be out of Ukraine and back in the world community. But when that day comes, do you really think they're just going to ignore the major chains? What are they going to do? Demand money? You know, how are they going to? They're just they- probably going to have to brush it under the carpet, I bet. Or those chains will, uh, you know, be bought by other chains and they can say, no, 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 we're not that yeah. same chain anymore. That, yeah. Or, or uh, alternatively, they'll say, no, 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 we'll, we'll still uh, work with you. Uh, I, I mean, for you, the film rental price is 90%, but, uh, you know, they'll take it out on them in other ways. Uh, but, you know, money talks. Do you talks. think they will? Do you think they will? Are they yeah, going to have oh, long think- memories or are they just going to say, well, what can we do? It was war and now we're just getting back to business. Uh, I, I, I feel like they'll probably maybe some make the bigger the player, the less they will take revenge. If it's a tiny one screen theater and they remember, they may say, oh, you're not getting our movie. You know, it's going to be based on how much it would hurt them. If it's not going to, if it's going to hurt the studio, I don't think they're going to do anything. I think they're basically going to say, oh, you know, we got to just forget about it. It's, that was a year ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's my much. prediction, but you'll have, you keep an eye on it. I certainly Everybody's, will. Everybody's keeping an eye on Taylor Swift. Good Lord, we cannot emphasize enough to have a concert film gross $100 million, much less book $100 million in advance ticket sales is mind-boggling. Yes, that is. I mean, look, uh, the highest grossing concert film of all time globally is Michael Jackson's This Is It at $250 million. Look at what it took for that number to two is down to like what a hundred and what like a I mean, hundred that's like, an outlier I, th- I think like a uh, hundred million and that's just in right yeah yeah just, just yeah there's very few almost you know uh, we, we that brings us to stop making sense if you don't mind stop <laughs> making sense this week <laughs> made almost a million dollars this week i think four hundred thousand dollars over the weekend it's still playing in regular theaters well worth going to check out it originally grossed five million dollars it's now at 9.1 million dollars total nine million dollars total that means stop making sense is the 20th highest grossing film of all time 20th number 20 on the list you'd have to gross a billion dollars if you were a film in general to be on the top all-time list in concert films and documentaries about music number 20 that's wow. that's how little concert films make. And Taylor Swift, we can look at Justin Bieber and Michael Jackson and in sync or whatever, but that is a crazy, crazy number. And as it was for Michael Jackson and Justin Bieber. So uh, very exciting. Whatever Beyonce makes, she will be in the top 10 all time. So 
You can throw your brick behind the Swifties came out in force and the Beyonce, whatever, it doesn't matter. Beyonce's film will also become one of the highest grossing concert films of all time the weekend it opens. And that's, I, I that's did notice that, that there was no uh, big press release about how much, you know, hey, it broke the internet when tickets went on sale for, for uh, the, the Beyonce movie. I think it uh, pre-sales for the first day were uh, around $7 million. Which is a ton of for money. a concert That's film, top, because- that makes you a top thirty of all time. So yeah. you know, chillax. We'll see what happens. Plus, I think her fans are trend a little bit older. I would agree with so, that. So you know, they're they're not the 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 young women who are ready to go in groups of twenty and you know buy tickets the second they're announced. So we'll see what happens. But there's great cinema all over the world. We didn't quite cover Indian cinema uh, yet, uh, but Indian cinema, as I said, is not just Bollywood, which refers to movies made in the Hindi language. Jawan is the highest grossing Bollywood film in history in India right now. It's out in theaters. It made where's Jawan? Where's Jawan? It's uh, made about a million dollars this week. It's at a hundred and thirty seven million dollars worldwide it's an action thriller and it is the highest grossing bollywood film in indian history that's amazing that's not adjusting for inflation but it's only the fourth highest grossing film in indian history in that country bahubali 2 was made in telugu kgf chapter 2 is a Kannada film and rrr which people talk about and won an oscar for best song that also was shot in telugu originally so it's an exciting market and we love to see all sorts of different types of movies succeed and cross-pollinate with each other and the rest of the world um, but, you know, no matter what's happening in India, it affects us. We want to see their movies succeed and their directors become world-class talent. And what happens in America, like a strike, that clearly affects people in London and other parts of the world, because you can see people in London striking in solidarity for the actors and saying, make a deal, damn it, make a deal. Well, plus, We're I mean, let's, work. let's face it, the, 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 the movies that are made and television shows that are made uh, here and in the UK, they travel, right? So if there's, they're yeah. not making anything because everybody's on strike, well, that affects, that affects Exhibitors. movie theater operators all over the world. That affects television, uh, you know, channels and linear channels all over the world, streaming services all over the world. And there, you know, there's going to be a little blip again here uh, in the next 24 months. Not a blip, not a blip, a big, a big disruption. Movies, you know, the the comeback that we hoped for and expected and could see happening uh, is is maybe derailed isn't the right word, but it's certainly been reduced. Certainly hampered, uh, what, throttled. Yeah, hampered, absolutely. So who's unionizing this week? What's happening? Well, this week, uh, the visual effects workers over at uh, Disney, they're joining IATSE, uh, kind of like the Marvel visual effects workers did, I think, just a week or two ago. So that seems to be... Uh, you know, yeah, there are 18 people in house at Disney right now, which uh, for visual effects workers, that seems a little low. Um, but they voted 13 to zero to unionize. Where were the other five people? That's what I want to know. And uh, SAG AFTRA, right? The talks are ongoing. Yeah. This is what we know, they're ongoing. That's good, right? Yeah, I love the way that uh, SAG AFTRA, and I'm, I, I'm not being sarcastic, they send out a press release, and it's like a one sentence press release saying, We are going to meet on Friday to talk about you know, to, to talk about our future contract, which is a nice way of saying, look, we're still talking because for two months, there were literally no negotiations. Because of the studios and streamers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, SAG we after said, we're, the we're, actors we're willing to, to sit down and the studios just, and this AMPTP just disappeared. 
What does SAG-AFTRA say about AI? That was a big sticking point for writers, and people said, you won't get anything. And we can argue over what they got and how that will play out down the road, but they did get the conversation going. They did get some things written down, and that will evolve. Uh, I love what SAG-AFTRA is saying about AI, where it's probably an even more, more immediate concern. Right, While there haven't been any scripts written by AI, there has certainly been AI already used to scam actors and scam people who don't realize that's not Tom Hanks endorsing that dental plan or whatever the heck was going on. So well, what, there's what's been there's take? been entire per, uh, performances that were created. A whole well, legally, clock. yes, but yes. that was legally, yes. yes. So oh, what's yeah. happening? What is what is SAG-AFTRA's stance? What are they saying about AI? They say that when AI is used, they want one consent. You got to ask them the actor. They want to credit the actor. Mm-hmm. And they want compensation for the actor, and they believe that their membership deserves the same protection that a studio would get and expect of their own work. Meaning if AI is used to create the work, the studio would expect that it could copyright that work. Well, likewise for for an actor. Well, that, that's not true. I think studios want the same protection for the work that they've already created that's not by AI. If it's used by AI oh, yeah. or in some way manipulated, yeah, because right now you cannot copyright something created solely by AI. That has been a court ruling and that will surely wind its way higher up in the court system and here in America. But right now, if something's created by AI, nobody can copyright it. So studios are saying, look, if I own 2001, I'm not watching you use AI to make a sequel and say, oh, I got, you know, it's like, no, 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 my stuff should be protected. And actors are saying, we deserve the same production. I think that's a that's a good thing. There's more fallout from the Writers Guild strike, of course. They haven't officially endorsed it yet or signed off. No, on but it, today but everything is due. Today, will. as a matter of fact. Ah, so today we're recording on Monday, uh, October 9th, uh, which is the birthday of John Lennon. I almost posted Give Peace a Chance, and I thought, oh, you know what? Some people might see that as critiquing one side or other in the nightmare what's happening in, in the Middle East right now. So I posted, imagine, can't go wrong with that. It's also happy birthday to the electric blanket. My mom loves her electric blanket. And that went on sale for the first time, October 9th, 1956, I think. And uh, my mom got one early on. It was a wedding gift, a wedding gift for her. 19, oh, I'm sorry, it went on sale in 1946, just after World War II in Petersburg, Virginia, the electric blanket. Nobody died. So that was exciting. People were probably scared for years to buy an electric blanket, but it well, worked. it was only until October tenth, nineteen forty six, that it uh, somebody <laughs> started a fight. Yeah, yeah. So then the then the state of Texas said, "Hey, we can use yeah, that." Exactly. Um, so yeah, so uh, it's October 9th, and the writers will be signing off on their deal today. But there's still one bit of fallout really surprised me. Drew Barrymore, we all know that she stuck her neck out by posting a video talking about going back on the air, even though other talk shows had already done that, and they're under a different contract. So she personally wasn't necessarily crossing the line, but she had a staff of three Emmy-nominated writers. That was her writing team for several years now. She loved them. They loved her, I assume, and everybody was happy. But then she was going to start the show and basically cross that picket line as far as they were concerned. And people were very unhappy, gave her a lot of grief. She said, nobody's going to be happy no matter what I do. But they were when she said, never mind, I won't cross the picket line. Everybody was happy. Good, good for you. You made a mistake and you admitted it and now you're rolling it back. Now, of course, the strike is over and all these shows are getting back on the air. Her show, of course, will return as well, but without her staff of writers. They need new writers because her staff of three Writers Guild of America team are quitting their jobs. They have declined to return to the show. Uh, That is a huge thing. I mean, that's your life. 
You dream of getting on an Emmy-nominated show. You dream of being a partnership and be happy, and the show is running and a success. The show could run for years, and they have walked away from a safe gig, which is no small thing. You know, they're not rich, I'm sure, none of them. None of them have written Everybody Loves Raymond. So this was their golden ticket, and they were so injured by what she did that they were not comfortable working with her anymore, I assume. And they all got together and decided that they were just going to decline and walk away. So that's, that shows how, how painful a strike can be, how, how much it can, you know, break people apart and, 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 and hurt relationships, professional relationships. So good for them, and we wish them the best. But that's, uh, that's, uh, that's kind of shocking. It's well, a, it's and, a shame. And, and part of the reason that. she was doing what she was doing is because, you know, her production company uh, basically has a contract to put the show out. Uh, and it's not under the SAG after. Now, the writers are, so she was basically saying, look, I have to put a show out. I don't have to put this particular show out. Again, obviously, we're going to go in and it'll be whatever show. Well, that's not the writer's attitude. Yeah. That's not the writer's attitude. They, they feel you can strike two. You didn't have to announce it yet. Not every show was coming back. They were all starting to break a little bit, but not all of them had WJ writers on their staff. Right. So, you know, it's different for every show. And they clearly took it personally, like, you're not supporting us. You don't have our back. Uh, if she had waited another week or two, guess what? They would have been back to work without any issue. So if she had stayed firm and stood behind her writers, none of that would have been an issue. She could have just said, I'm not ready yet. You know, let everybody else go back on the air first. Why isn't anybody yelling at the view? She could say that. Um, uh, but whatever happened, uh, she paid a price for it. And they're paying a big price by deciding not to come back. You know, I've looked at some of the things that the writers got. And I think we garbled a bit the staffing issue. Uh, to clarify, if you're making a streaming show, and you, or I think even on the air, if you have six episodes or less, they must hire three writers. If you have seven to 12 episodes, you must hire five writers, including at least three writer producers. And if you have 13 plus episodes, you're going to have six writers. There is an exception for single writers like me creating a whole mini series all by myself, but that has to be established in advance. So they got minimum staffing. They got some transparency. They got streaming bonuses based on a metric of total viewership. Uh, that's all reality now and all stuff that they were told going in was not going to happen. They got guaranteed payment for a second draft. Think about that. For decades now, studios have just expected writers to do second draft, third draft, take the notes. Well, you don't want to. Oh, you yeah. really don't want to work with us, huh? And demanding work without pay. And even worse was they're finally getting accelerated payments. The studio owes you money. You need that $30,000 because that's going to tide you over for the next six months or three months. You've got your bills to pay, and they're just slow walking you. It's not even an issue really of them making money off it, sitting in a bank in the interest. You know, It's not going to make any difference to them, the money that they're withholding from writers because they felt they could. And so I'm glad that's in the contract, but how obnoxious are the studios to do that in the first place? So, you know, there was a, a lot of ill will because of the way studios treated their writers. And it's great to see them get what they got. I hope the actors get everything they deserve uh, because that's where the action is, isn't it? It's all in streaming. Well, that's what they'd like you to believe. Yes. Who's that? I'm just the, the royal they. The ones that you never really identify. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, um, there's a lot of money being made in network TV and still cable, but uh, there's a lot of future in streaming. And right now, if you look at streaming, there are five titles uh, in the latest info that we have that have 
hit at least 1 billion of minutes viewing. That's a really a blockbuster level. Suits is on top with 2.3 billion minutes in viewing. That is just unbelievable. And the new season of Virgin River, it wasn't even a full season that dropped. That's at 1.9 billion minutes. Do, do these series drop or is it, I mean, because I thought it albums dropped the series pre-premiere. I don't know. No, they drop if they put all the episodes okay, down at once. Right. So when you're on Netflix and you're Virgin River or One Piece or, uh, you know, or your SWAT, which is a uh, legacy title that they acquired and it's being shown on Hulu and Paramount Plus and Netflix, all the episodes are basically available at once. And if you're The Little Mermaid, well, that's a, a live action film from Disney Plus that also uh, hit over 1 billion minutes, 1.3 billion minutes. Well, then that title, of course, drops all in one day as well. They don't drop half the movie. So five titles, Suits, SWAT, and the pre-existing Little Mermaid are there. And the original shows Virgin River and One Piece, both on Netflix, are also in that top five for the week ending September 4th and September 10th. Uh, so that's, that's pretty good to see. And ad tiers are the way to go. Discovery Plus. They announced that their standalone Discovery Plus, if it's not a package deal with uh, HBO Max, etc., they're keeping their ad tier at $5. But if you want an ad-free tier, you're now going to have to pay $9, almost double the price. So that went up from $7 to $9 here in North America. So it's going to cost you almost twice as much as the ad-free tier in order to avoid ads if you are subscribing to Discovery Plus alone. They really want you to watch some ads, don't they? Yes, and uh, so much so that... Netflix has already signaled that as soon as the SAG after strike is over, they will be raising their non ad tier price to like probably around $20 something I, from what, from what I think 1599 or something like that. Wow. the uh, 22% increase. Well, I, again, I, you know, these are speculations. So let's hold. Yeah. I didn't see any good reporting on that. I, I saw it widely mentioned, but all seem to be referring to the same one piece. Oh, okay. You know, everybody repeated it, but Nobody has any more info than that original bit of speculation. Though Netflix did not come out and say, hey, what are you talking about? That's a lie. So we'll have to see. Um, in social justice news, a lot happened this week. A lot of people are involved, but keep it in perspective. Remember, 99% of the people you work with are never going to be publicly accused of assault or rape. So, you know, when you think, oh my God, it's everybody. No, it's not everybody. <laughs> so normally behave yourself and you'll be fine. So no, it's not, you know, thank God these people are paying a price if they are in fact guilty. But anyway, Julia Ormond, a terrific actress who kind of fell off the face of the earth and now we know perhaps why, she is suing Creative Artists Agency and Disney for enabling Harvey Weinstein encouraging her to take a meeting with Weinstein, even though they had every reason to know that he was a sexual assaulter and not to be trusted. And he did, in fact, she says, sexually assault her. And then they discouraged her from going to the police, saying her career would be ruined and you're not going to get much money anyway. And she says her career was derailed no matter what she did. And she's angry and she is now suing them. CAA responds by saying, hey, we hired a law firm to exonerate, I mean, to investigate us. And uh, they found no wrongdoing. Plus, she tried to shake us down for 15 million. Well, we'll have to see where it all ends up. And in Japan, they're beginning to have a reckoning. And a week or two ago, we reported on Johnny and Associates, the legendary Japanese talent agency rocked by the long known scandal that people didn't talk about of molestation, sexual assault, and abuse carried on by the company's founder and others for decades. But isn't the founder the still company, the founder is still there, sort of. The founder's dead. Oh, the founder okay. is now dead. But the company announced it would forego any fees for the next year. They they had a big plan to sort of clear it all 
all away. All right, look, we're not going to take any fees. It will all go directly to the artists, to the talent. We'll also set up an independent panel to determine restitution for others. Well, it wasn't enough. Um, People said, really? Now the company announces it will split into two companies, with one devoted to compensating the victims and calling itself Smile Up. No, it's Time's (laughs) Up, not Smile Up, Time's Up. Ah, yeah, see? really? I saw it smile up. No, 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 up. it is right. smile, up, smile up. Oh, you're making a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time's okay. up is the me too. Yeah, okay. I thought maybe it was a translation. No. The other company will continue as a talent agency and hold a contest for fans to come up with a new scandal-free name. So far, 478 people have come forward to tell their stories of sexual harassment, abuse, and rape. The new head of the company, who has worked there since 1979, has also been accused of sexually abusing boys and young men. He said in September, I don't remember clearly. Maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't. I have trouble remembering. Maybe that's what now I was he referring says, to. I def- yeah. Now he says he definitely didn't, but maybe he took part in power harassment. So Johnny and Associates has a lot of work to do, assuming it can ever survive in its current form. And I'm guessing no. And that's a big deal because in Japan, it's like seeing CAA get toppled. Yeah. It really has a big impact on a lot of lives. Well, if that's a big deal, I wonder what you think of some of our stories in our Big Deal or Big Whoop segment. Big Deal or Big Whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story is about Yellowstone, which is a huge hit. The Taylor Sheridan drama is drawing eyeballs to CBS on prime time. That's pretty remarkable. Mind you, these are reruns, okay? Reruns of episodes that aired, you know, five years ago. And yet, (laughs) they're pulling in millions of viewers, a huge chunk of whom have never seen the show before. Okay, it's only 4 million plus viewers for episodes four and five. It's not like you know, Taylor Swift is guest starring on the series. So these aren't NFL numbers, but with the strikes kneecapping the fall TV season, Yellowstone is proving to have a little life left in it. Those numbers are down about 10% from week one, by the way, but apparently some of those folks are newcomers who liked what they saw and headed to Peacock to binge it. So they're kind of gutting themselves. Numbers for the series are trending up there as well over on Peacock. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, Well, it's a big deal. Apparently, some people are really old and don't know how to watch streaming. (laughs) You know, it's five years later. They can watch it all on demand somewhere. It's like those people who are still paying for their AOL email addresses. And you're like, wait, what? No, don't Wait, what? Well, why wouldn't I? Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, but it is interesting. It tells you the reach and power of Yellowstone. It is a valuable franchise. Uh, we hate to see layoffs, but they're happening at DreamWorks Animation. Oh. Um, oh, I skipped a story, but I'll yeah. go back to it. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's go back to DreamWorks Animation first. You know, once a part of a mini studio, DreamWorks Animation is now a shadow of its former self, and it's getting shadowier, if that's a word. I don't know. Is that a word? Uh, no, no one really cares because the facts are that DreamWorks Animation is shedding more than 4% of its staff and moving away from in-house production on its animated works, at least in part. It's enough to make Fiable want to emigrate or immigrate, emigrate, emigrate. I don't know. Emigrate. He's leaving. Yeah, he's leaving. I, I know, by the way, please don't write in. I know, I know. An American Tale, which is where Fiable comes from, was Amblin, not DreamWorks. But I think the joke still works. What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Well, big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. 4%. 
sounds like, oh, for only 4%. That's people's lives, again, being destroyed or being seriously 70. derailed. 70, in fact. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a real shame to see, especially since at one point, DreamWorks and DreamWorks Animation were really major players. And it's great to see more healthy studios and mini studios out there. The fewer they are, the less happy we are. Well, and let's face it, basically what they're saying is, yeah, we're just going to be outsourcing all of our production. We, we, you know, we'll come up with the big ideas and the big, yeah. you know, scripts and maybe a few key frames. But then we'll just, you know, Sony Imageworks will do the work or somebody else will do the work in Vancouver. So it's animation production moving out of Hollywood, which. Yeah, and that, that's a lot more than the 70 people being affected by their layoffs. Right. Now, yeah. now, it's always a good idea to bet on a star like Reese Witherspoon. Who wouldn't? I mean, she's a force to be reckoned with. Her company, Hello Sunshine, on the other hand, well, that might be another story, but that's exactly what Candle Media did. Candle Media was founded in 2021 amidst the COVID pandemic by two former Disney executives. One of their key purchases was a big chunk of Witherspoon's media company, Hello Sunshine. On For a big chunk of money. Yeah, a, like $900 million, by the way. Oh, my God. Unfortunately, since then, it has, well... Underdelivered. A Bloomberg story says that piece of the company will fall short of its expected profits this year by 90%. I mean, that's like, I don't know. That's like batting 100. Okay. That's not, not batting 1,000, <laughs> batting 100. The chunk of Coco Melon that uh, Candle Media purchased is down 30% from its expectations. Hello, rain. I don't get what rain is, but uh, I don't know why. Instead of hello, sunshine, oh, hello, hello, rain. rain. Okay, well, oh, I get it. Hello, rain. Oh, yeah. Okay, I did not. I didn't put those two things together. I would have. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, anyway, big deal, a big whoop. Uh, it's a big whoop. Company made a mistake. They overpaid. Uh, it, I think we criticized the deal at the time. We really should be able to play up our old audio. I know. Just listen to ourselves talk about whenever the you know four years ago and go. Yeah, we were right. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure we said, "Wow, that's a lot of money for a company that does not have a big library." I mean, we like Reese Witherspoon. I believe in her. I'd love to invest in her projects as they come up. But almost a billion dollars for a company that's been you know successful but dear lord what exactly are you buying uh so you're basically buying the name because ultimately and this is the reason this might be a big deal is because all these hedge funds and investment firms rather than doing what they had been doing which is spending overspending really for all these companies like hello sunshine uh they're Mm -hmm. now going to be like you know what guys here's what we'll buy we'll buy a big giant company not a company that might have some potential. We'll buy the company that's already successful and has a library. Uh, and they're well, basically- Hello Sunshine was, is successful or was successful. It's just not a big library. So you're not buying a lot of assets, just hope for future stuff exactly. and $900 million, just like $400 million for the Exorcist franchise, which isn't much of a franchise when you look at the movies originally. This movie will be profitable, but not when you count the $400 million it took to, to buy it. Right. So, yeah, it's just uh, not smart shopping. Well, let's talk about Amazon. Uh, not Amazon. I'm sorry. Amazon Prime. I mean, I mean uh, no. Prime Video. Prime Video. I think that's what mm-hmm. they want us to call okay. it this week, right? Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, they would like to be a gatekeeper for streaming. At an Asian summit, Vice President of International at Prime Video, Kelly Day, he laid out their plans. In many countries. She. Oh, it's a she. Okay. Sexist. Well, I don't know. Kelly Day, I don't know. Sexist. Could be anybody. Uh, you, you should assume it was a woman. They're taking over the world. They run the world, as 
Beyonce, Beyonce would say that. that, yeah. So in many countries, you can already subscribe to streamers like Paramount Plus, HBO Max, Stars, and BritBox via Amazon. They have 500 channel partners right now, Prime Video, and Amazon wants more. And this is a quote. It could be fast channels, linear channels, AVOD channels, so a- advertising video on demand channels that we have in many locales. We're really trying to deliver the maximum selection possible. Day said Prime Video is focused on delivering a very personalized and engaging experience so that whenever customers come to the service, they're always going to find something that works for them that they want to watch. She referred multiple times to the concept of being a singular entertainment destination and the convenience of having one place to go. We want to deliver a very personalized experience with an easy to use single billing application that just makes it easy for customers to navigate everything that's out there and find something worth watching. Each iteration is tailored to the local market. You know what they called this years ago was cable. They called it cable. So big deal or big whoop? Well, people have wanted to be the gatekeeper for years. Of course, they want everybody else to come through them. Then you have all their information. You have their credit card number. You have access to everything they're doing everywhere. And everybody else is isolated and siloed and becomes slowly and horrifically dependent on you to give you your customers. Uh, that's what everybody wants. I'm a nice triumph. Oh, wait, they're almost kind of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Paramount and HBO Max think it's a good idea to let Amazon be the gatekeeper for them. It's not the only place you can get those things, but they're doing it there. So I guess maybe they think we're available there and Apple and elsewhere, but Amazon's really big. So I'd be wary once they have, you know, 30, 40% of your audience coming via Amazon that suddenly they say, you know what? That little chunk of change we take we like it to be a little bigger yeah i would be wary so but they're starting to pull it off because they're so big well that wraps up big deal or big whoop for this week and moves us along into inside baseball or i guess we're going to be talking about somebody else that got really big inside baseballs where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing we'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly how they affect you and this this story does affect you if you are a spotify customer number one or if you like audiobooks so it's really affecting two different uh industries here one the you know music streaming business and audio streaming we should call it the audio streaming business because they do music podcasts and now audiobooks right and and of course the publishing uh industry because spotify is saying that for premium customers they're going to give you 15 hours of audiobook listening a week (laughs) or per month that's right that's that's what they're saying yeah, that's right. Spotify is going all in on audiobooks, a new area it thinks the company can attract tons of listeners or really keep you on Spotify, but not listening to music so they don't have to pay as much in royalties. It, previously, Spotify offered some audiobooks for sale, and we sort of cocked an eyebrow at that, thinking it was kind of weird and difficult, and it was. It was complicated and not what the company was known for, having to buy stuff. Right. And it was like a three or four step process. It didn't work well. What they're known for is being a one monthly fee and access to a big library. So if you're giving me music, I want a big library of music. You're doing podcasts, I want a lot of podcasts. Now they're offering audiobooks properly, and you're going to have a big offering of audiobooks. So what are they going to launch at? at uh, what are they going to launch with when titles are available? Will that be like 10 books by, you know, freelancers and people that we've never heard of? Or what are they doing? 
Well, they're they're well, as you say, they're giving. Uh, I think there's what 150,000 titles at launch, and you'll get uh, mm-hmm. 15 hours of free audiobook listening every single month. That's right. Um, in fact, they've got deals with all the publishers, but some of them are a little more wary. Macmillan gave them some stuff. Penguin Random House and HarperCollins, two of the big four or five, they're giving all their current audiobooks. Current, I don't know what that means. I guess maybe stuff that's on the charts right now, not their entire library, but everything they have out currently or within the last year or two, I guess, will be available on Spotify. So that's amazing. Here's a quote from Anna Maria Alessi, the vice president and publisher of Hachette Audio. She said, quote, I see this as a huge opportunity to be in the company of Joe Rogan, Taylor Swift, and Beyonce. What do you think about that quote? Anything? Yeah, they're not really in the same company. And well, they are. They're all they're being the company of them because they're all available on Spotify. So yeah, you could listen to Taylor Swift and then go listen to an audiobook that Taylor says, Oh, I love that book. And maybe you'll go listen to that audiobook. Beyonce might have a book club or whatever, but you just you can listen to Joe Rogan, you can play music by Beyonce, and then go listen to an audiobook from Hachette. What struck me was that someone in the very progressive liberal world of publishing saying, Oh, I can't wait to be in the company of Joe Rogan. Yeah, that's, well, that's one that's, person I would not have mentioned. Yeah, that's true. 90% percent of the people who write for Hachette are like, I don't want to be in the company of Joe Rogan. Thank you very much. And I do wonder if that was a, uh, did that come from a press release? Because if so, it's probably Even like worse. one of those things that Spotify put together and they said, Let, we need, we need Taylor Swift. We need Spot- Beyonce. Spotify didn't, Spotify did not, no, they did not te- force Anna Maria Alessi to put her name on that. It's Hachette's fault, her PR people and her fault. If she said it, it's her fault. If it's her people signed off on it, I don't think Spotify told them what to say. So. It's their fault, Hachette, and specifically Anna Maria Alessi. Heads should roll, because if I was an author, I'd say, wait, what? I don't want to be next to Joe Rogan. Uh, You know, people like libraries, diverse opinions, absolutely, but I'm not thrilled to be offered side-by-side with Joe Rogan, and emphasizing that is not really a good move. Like you say, they get 15 hours of free audiobook listening a month, and you can chop it up any way you want. It's not like if you pick a book, you have to stick with that, and you can't listen to anything else. You can listen to 10 minutes of one book and an hour of another until you find something you really like, and then you can keep listening to it until your 15 15 hours are up. If you book's not done or you want to listen to more that month, you they'll be happy to take your money for another $11. You can listen to an extra 10 hours that month. And every but, month, but, you, you know, get here's another the thing 15 is, hours of listening. Yeah, but as far as I'm concerned, uh-huh. here's the thing. No book, well, very few books, are under 10 hours. A lot of these books are like 12 hours, 14 hours, 15 hours, 17 Spotify hours. Spotify says 70% of all books are... They insist most ebooks, the vast majority, are seven to ten hours long. Okay, right. and I think what they're counting are a bunch of romance titles, a bunch of self-published titles. Because, like you, I said seven to ten hours. Uh, I went through the l- most recent books I've been listening to. Like the last book I just finished is George the Sixth and Elizabeth: The Marriage That Saved the Monarchy. 22 hours for that nonfiction book. Um, I want to read Hollywood and the movies of the 50s. 36 hours. Clan War, a nonfiction book, 17 hours. Uh, but I thought maybe I'm a freak and I listen to stuff that's really long. So I looked at the top five of fiction and nonfiction for the New York Times, the most recent list. Three of them, 30% are less than 10 hours. 
Two are over 10 hours. They're 10 to 15 hours. And half the list, five of them, are 20 to 36 hours. A J.K. Rowling mystery The Running Gave is 36 hours. Ken Follett's latest novel in his Pillars of the Earth series, The Armor of Light, that's 21 hours. These are all the current five most popular fiction and nonfiction. And seven out of 10, that math doesn't, yeah, seven out of 10 are over 10 hours long, half of them way over 10 hours long. So yeah, you're going to be listening to a book and you're going to hit 15 hours and go, wait, what? So what you're saying <laughs> is 70% of the books that nobody wants to listen to are under 15 hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are people who love genre romance and genre sci-fi and genre, you know, erotica or whatever, and the stuff that's churned out in the mysteries and thrillers section. And there are stuff. There's some good books. Democracy Awakening is a new top five book. That's eight hours long. Uh, Enough by a former uh, a staff person for the Trump White House. That's 11 hours long. Mark Levin of Fox News t- takes 11 hours to tell us that the Democrat Party hates America. I can get that on Fox News. Bill O'Reilly, God bless him, he has a book out called Killing the Witches in his Killing series. It's about the Salem witch trials. That's only nine months long. And James Patterson and Mike Lupica to two, it took two of them to write a thriller called 12 Months to Live. That's only nine plus hours. There are titles on the list under 10 hours. But most of them are over 10 hours, and many of them are well over 10 hours, and those are the most popular books around. You want to hear the Elon Musk bio by Walter Isaacson? That's 20 hours along. So either you have to wait till the end of the month, you know, use your 15 hours, and then, you know, you get another five hours when when the first of the month rolls around. I assume the hours do not accumulate, but we don't really have a lot of details, but I assume they don't accumulate unless you pay for them. Right. They don't yeah. roll over because, you you know, maybe, but I assume they don't unless yeah, no. they're hours that you actually paid for. Then I'm then I'm sure they do. Uh, so it's a it's there's a lot of questions. I also don't know what publishers get. They're being paid for consumption. How many hours someone listens to their particular audiobook, though we don't know the formula. We don't know how many hours of listening it would take for a single title to equal one purchase of the audiobook. And remember, audiobooks are hugely successful. They're the best story in publishing right now. They're about to outpace ebooks in terms of total revenue. Wow. It's the one clear success story of publishing in the last five or so years. And so that's, that's a big deal. So are they messing with a winning formula or by going to consumption? Are they screwing things up? I, I, Is I this think really that, a big change? I think that ultimately you, gotta, you have to experiment, right? If you don't experiment... There's no advances. So if it doesn't work, they can always go back to what they had before. It's not like, I mean, for instance, you know, uh, Spotify isn't investing heavily anymore in podcasts. They experiment. Well, they got a lot of podcasts. They're just not investing over investing, I would say. So I say, try it out. See what happens. It might be good for everybody. uh, It might be. Happily, they're not really experimenting that much because this is what's happening with Audible. Now, Amazon's Audible is an audiobook service, $15 a month. It's only an ebook, uh, an audiobook service. It's not a music and st- podcast and audiobook service, but people subscribe to Amazon Audible. I believe it's $15 a month, and they get access to books. Uh, the deal there is a little bit better. You get one free book a month of your choice, a credit that you don't have to use that month. You, it, that does roll over. You get to pick one book that's available from them, and that's your book for that, that, that you own forever. So after a year, if you leave, the 12 books that you get from that one credit are yours forever. And it can be any length. I chose George the Sixth and Elizabeth, that story about the monarchy, 36-hour book or whatever. 
I own that now and I can listen to it at my leisure. I don't have to wait two months and two and a half months just to get enough hours to do it. So you can choose any book of any length that they offer. And it's pretty much everything, all the current bestsellers. You can use your credit for that book. So if you like the Walter Isaacson book, you want to hear it, you don't have to wait on the list at your library. You don't have to wait for enough hours to do it. You can just get it that month. So you get one free book that you own forever that you can listen to on audio. And then after that, you can access their huge library of audiobooks. I'm listening to Stephen Fry read the stories of Sherlock Holmes right now. That's like 80 hours long. You know, it's, it's everything that, that Conan Doyle wrote about Sherlock Holmes. So it's like eight or nine collections of short stories and novels. So there's a lot of hours there. I'm not even done yet. And there's, I've got 50 or 60 other stuff queued up that if I don't have a new book I want to listen to and I want to share with my mom in the car, we can listen to that. So we're doing consumption already on Audible. I don't know how good of a deal it is for publishers. I've seen very little to nothing about, well, how does this work out? What are the royalties like? How much money are they making? We know audio in general is working. I know I access it via my library. I know some people are paying just flat out for new audiobooks to digital download. But in terms of how Audible is doing, I guess they're happy with how Audible is doing because they're doing a slightly less good deal via Spotify. They'll probably get a little bit more money, I imagine, because of how it's structured. So it's not that big a change. It's probably a little more lucrative for them than what they're getting from Amazon, who, of course, dominates the uh, ebook and audiobook market. So they're happy to have another player. I think they're just saying, great, we got Spotify to counterbalance Amazon, let's let them try to show some strength as well. Well, I mean, uh, again, I, I, I think uh, let's see how it plays out. Well, they've been doing Audible for years, and yeah. it's, you know, and they can see Amazon dominating more and more as they have in ebooks and audiobooks. I think they're saying, great, we got somebody else who can be a counterbalance to them. At least we got two people fighting for us rather than just one. I think Audible should start uh, cutting deals with Beyonce and Taylor Swift. And start. I'm sure they have well, talked I mean, to them te- every Technically, day. they could, you know, Amazon Music, and they could actually combine that offering anyway. So I'm joking sure. around, but it's it is possible. It is possible, but it's not possible to go see New Orleans drummer Russell Batiste Jr. Unfortunately, he has died at the far too young age of 57. If most people ever heard of him, Russell Batiste Jr. They probably knew him as the older cousin of John Batiste, the Grammy-winning musician who led the band for Stephen Colbert's Late Show for many years. But if you live in New Orleans or love its music, John Batiste is the younger cousin of Russell, one of the city's great drummers, a mainstay of local music, and a member of one of the city's most famous musical dynasties. Russell played with everyone, from the Meters to Harry Connick Jr. He led numerous bands and pioneered the funky, boundary-busting band Vita Blue in the early 2000s after cleaning up from addiction. You could hear him on countless albums collaborating with anyone and everyone. It was all about collaboration. But best of all, I mean, that's like a great drummer, right? He's important. He's providing the pulse of the song. Song. But best of all, you could head to New Orleans clubs like Maple Leaf Bar or Le Bon Temps Rouet and enjoy his music night after night after night. I have friends who will miss him dearly. Yeah, I mean, he was, uh, he was a working musician's working musician. He really, yes, and very well known. As was Terrence Davies, who, uh, you know, I almost, so Terrence Davies, he, he's, a, he's a, everything from a poet, a playwright. I mean, he, he, uh, what? What? Yeah, I thought no, I no. read him. He was doing poetry as well. Maybe it was just film adaptations that I was reading. I don't know. I'm, I read so many yeah, obituaries. Yeah, no, he's, he's, a film, he's a pure filmmaker. I okay, well, uh, he, uh, he died at the age of 77, and I was there 
updating his Wikipedia page because <laughs> I was like, oh, nobody updated his Wikipedia page yet. Then I realized just how much you have to do when you're changing everything to the past tense. I was halfway through when you texted me. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do this. Somebody else is probably doing this right now. <laughs> Somebody else will do yeah. it. Right. <laughs> so you're, you're a Wikipedia editor. I am too. I don't do much, but I have, I have jumped in and done things a few times. Well, yeah. When I see an egregious error. So Terrence Davies is one of my favorite directors. He delivered a number of film adaptations about poets and playwrights, I think is what we're talking about. He oh, did, maybe that's know, what it was. His most recent movie was Benediction. Um, but he did film adaptations or films about artists like The House of Mirth, or which was an adaptation of the Edith Wharton novel uh, starring Gillian Anderson. Benediction, about the World War I poets. Uh, Sunset Song. Uh, based on a great, great novel. The fact that he made that movie was what prompted me to read the novel, which is terrific. And The Deep Blue Sea, which is by playwright Terrence Radigan, I believe. But he'll be primarily remembered for deeply personal autobiographical films, namely the collage documentary of Time in the City about Liverpool and his two masterpieces, Distant Voices, Still Lives, and The Long Day Closes. If you haven't seen them and you ever get a chance to see them in the theater, by God, do it. I can still, I've never had an experience like I had with Terrence Davies when I first watched Distant Voices Still Lies. Uh, I was watching it on a TV at home in South Florida and I knew nothing about, I knew I was supposed to see it. And I was, I think it was the end of the year and every year come New Year's Eve, I, I want to treat myself to watch a classic film or two or three that I've never seen before, so I can start the year off with a great movie. You know, get that under your belt, start the year off right. And I had chosen Distant Voices Still Lies, and I put it on, and this movie is like a dream. His signature style of just the cameras floating through a scene and dialogue melds into music, which melds into people singing, which melds into visuals, which flows into, I mean, it's just, I watched this movie dumbstruck, and I thought, Oh my God, I've never really thought about making a movie, but if I did, I would want it to be like this. Like, this is cinema. It is not a play. It's not a novel. It's not a short story. It's not a TV series. It's, it is pure cinema, and you really could not tell these stories any other way. I mean, they could be adapted, probably poorly, for the stage or something, like The Long Day Closes or Distant Voices Still Eyes, but these are movies, and they really exist only as movies, and they're just marvelous the long day closes is a little warmer there's a lot of tough content in his movies they're not brutal to watch but there's some sad stuff in it for sure it's a closeted kid stricken by his catholic guilt parents are drunk or abusive sometimes that sort of things but oh they're just such good movies and the long day closes is really ultimately very beautifully about loving movies and finding refuge there and it's just one of the great films of all time well, the long podcast closes too, I might add, <laughs> because that was our last story for this week. Uh, but you know what? We may or may not be here next week, but you should subscribe to us and find out, okay? We're on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Microsoft Marketplace, wherever they give podcasts away for free is usually where you can find Showbiz Sandbox. And we appreciate it when you rate and review our show, and any one of those aggregators. It really helps us out when you do that. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as those ways to subscribe to us, they can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. 
That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter, where our handle is at ShowbizSandbox. And we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash ShowbizSandbox. And I I have to change it, I guess. Now, I have to change it to we're on X, formerly known as Twitter. But in any case, all that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? Well, this week it's TerrenceDavies.com. I thought that would be a joke because I thought there's no way, Terrence, if you knew Terrence Davies or ever met him, you'd think that guy does not have a website. He does. But somebody set up his website. He has an official website, and there's a quote from the Evening Standard, which sadly has to be changed. It says, Britain's greatest living film director. It certainly was was arguably true. So uh, a sad passing. Well, if you can't find Michael there at that website, you can find all of his work and entertainment coverage on michaelgiltz.com. Some of my work can be found on Celluloid Junkie. Until next week, play nice. 